may be seated. We love to celebrate, right? I mean, we love to have a good good reason to get together and have a party, right? I mean, I don't know that I know anybody that would prefer to mourn over celebrating. I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody, even the darkest of personalities, that would prefer to go to a funeral than a wedding. I mean, it's just not what we're we're made up like. It's not who we are. And maybe, maybe there is somebody out there that's like that, but I don't know that I've ever met them. And if, if they're out there, you can let me know about it. But we're just going to recognize that they are the minority. I think that's probably the case. But we, we love to celebrate so much that we, I mean, we write songs about it. We write songs about the things we celebrate. We, we make up reasons to celebrate. In fact, just this week as I was preparing for this and thinking about it, I thought, you know, what, what, are, some of the, what are some of the reasons we make up to celebrate? And so I, I stumbled onto this. I actually Googled reasons we celebrate, and I stumbled onto this site that... <laughs> I don't. I didn't know this existed, but they. I, I guess there's a national day for almost everything. Like every day we've decided belongs to something, and so I just looked through a little bit. I didn't spend a lot of time, but I looked through a little bit just to get some insight into this. And and here's just some of the interesting ones I found. August fourth is National Mustard Day. They said the reason to celebrate on August fourth is mustard. I mean, really. Is mustard that good to us that we, we're, we're going to name a day for it and we're going to celebrate mustard? Way to go, craft. I, you know, I mean, come on. August or, or September 6th, National Coffee Ice Cream Day. That's two of my favorite things, coffee and ice cream. And you put them together and it is a wonderful, wonderful treat. But does it deserve a day? Come on. I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe it does. September 19th. This is one I'm really looking forward to. I think I'm going to celebrate this one. September 19th, International Talk Like a Pirate Day. I didn't know. I I mean, I was like, really? That sounds so fun. Talk Like a Pirate Day. Do you think, I, I mean, I'm just wondering, do you think we could go to like work and say, hey, we need the day off for this? I, I think it's worth celebrating. I mean, it's not just national. It's so big. It's international. Talk like a pirate day. Just because we can. I mean, that's good, right? I mean, we celebrate. We celebrate every week. We celebrate the arrival of the weekend. Who longs for Saturday, or actually Friday afternoon? Anybody that has a five-day work week, Monday through Friday, longs for Friday afternoon, right? I I had a Facebook friend. And she's still a Facebook friend. She's kind of, I, I don't know, maybe she listened to my sermon and she heard me comment on this and realized what she was doing. But she constantly posted on the weekend. I mean, it was not, not posted during the weekend. Every post she made was about how horrible Monday was. Oh, Wednesday's finally here. The weekend's coming. It all revolved around and related to the weekend because... She celebrated the weekend. She longed for the weekend. I mean, when you get up and when you get ready to go out Friday and Saturday night, the big nights to go out, you know, I mean, when I was still partying, that was the nights that things were going on. And I didn't wait for the weekend. It was just me. But the reality is, as a lot of people, most responsible employees do, you wait to the weekend, the weekend arrives, and, and it's a reason to party. It's a reason to have a celebration. But the reality is, is that we celebrate all kinds of things, all kinds of things. 
But really, in comparison to the one who truly deserves to be celebrated, they really are inconsequential. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be in this series called Celebrate, Celebrating God. It's really a call to worship. As you know, I, I, the vision of our church, everything about who we are in this church is striving to draw each person that spends any time with us to a place where they don't just come to worship on Sunday morning, but they wake up on Monday with an attitude of worship. That we live life in a, in a posture of worship. I mean, worship truly is the highest purpose for us. It's, it's the very reason we were created. We were designed to celebrate God. Believe it or not, that's, that's what you were designed for. That's why we love celebrations. It's, it's why we love to, to give ourselves to the party because we were designed for it. But so often we, we misplace our affections. We misplace our priorities and we are celebrating all the wrong things. Not that, that by themselves that there, there's anything wrong with them. It's not wrong to enjoy a weekend. It's not wrong to celebrate and, 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 and have a party because somebody is turning 30. It's not wrong to celebrate and, and have a party because someone got a promotion. But those, those celebrations are just glimpses, small glimpses of what our life of celebration about the God who created, the God who saved us, is all about. So as we work through this, this series, we're going to be building it out of Leviticus 23. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to spend the next seven weeks breaking down Leviticus 23 and looking at the celebrations or the festivals that God gave the Israelites to celebrate. We're not going to put them in our church calendar. We're not bound by the law. It's not the, but, but as we look at them and as we study them, I, I, believe, I, I believe that not only will we see God high and lifted up, we will see His Son demonstrated. We will see the beauty of his plan of redemption. And I think that we will begin to see and understand, even though we're not necessarily taking on the traditions or the law, we'll see ways that our life, every moment of it, can emulate worship, can be, can be lived out with an attitude of worship. You see, the reality is this. The celebration isn't bad. The reality is, is that the celebration shouldn't end. But it's the object of our celebration that becomes the issue. You see, this is a call to worship our God. And so it's not that we, it's not that we set aside the celebration. It's not that we change the actions necessarily. But underneath all of it, we understand that it is all done in honor of the God who created us and the God who saved us. I mean, just consider this. Think about this for just a second because the reality is is that if Adam and Eve had never fallen into sin, things would have looked vastly, drastically different. And we don't know exactly how different they would have looked. I mean, they would have looked different. We'd be sitting around here naked. It's just the reality. That's how different it would be. It would be that different. I don't know that we'd have church services like we do today. I don't, I don't know that we would have jobs in the way that we do today. But what I do know is that we would live in the design of God, in His design completely and fully. Had Adam and Eve not rebelled and eaten that fruit and, and sinned against God, 
all that they did, all of their life would have been in God's design and by God's design. And so that means as they walked in the garden and ruled it and subdued it, that would have been an act of worship. It would have brought honor and glory to God as they ate and enjoyed all the fruit from all the trees but one. It would have been an act of worship. It would have honored God. As they were fruitful and multiplied, it would have been an honor, an act of worship to God. And the reality is, is that in Christ, in Christ, He is putting it all back together. And I think you're going to see that played out over the next several weeks as we work through Leviticus 23. So if you've got your Bibles, let's just jump in. We're just going to deal with three verses today. They'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Leviticus 23, 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, of the festivals, the Sabbath is most unique in, in, in for a couple of reasons. In that first, it is weekly instead of annually. And honestly, most people probably don't even consider it a festival, but we recognize that God is saying this is a festival. And not only is it weekly instead of annually, but the, the, the Sabbath runs through and is part of every other festival. So you'll hear the language that he uses explaining and, and calling people to this Sabbath. You'll, you'll hear it all the way through the rest of this chapter. It's important we start here, I think, because it, is the, the, it undergirds all of the other festivals. This, the word Sabbath simply means to cease work to rest or to stop doing what you're doing. To Sabbath means to, to rest, to, to quit working. And God set the example for that in creation. In the creation, He created for six days and on the seventh day He rested. And when He rested, He looked at His work and He saw that it was all good. It's not that God got tired. It's not, he's not like us. It's not, that, it's not like He said, oh man, molding that dude out of dust wore me out. He, that didn't happen. He wasn't tired. He wasn't worn out. He didn't, need to, he didn't need to take a break. But he knew his work was done, and he rested, and he set the example. And it's interesting that you should note that he didn't turn around at that point and say, now, man and woman, Adam and Eve, I want you to Sabbath every seventh day. He gave them commands in the garden. Eat all the fruit except for one. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue the earth. But he never said Sabbath. It's interesting, I think, because I think in that moment, in that time, as they're walking with God before rebellion, they're in His presence, in the midst of a rest, in, in, in the midst of a Sabbath that, that we are hoping and longing to be back in. See, the Sabbath commands didn't come until after the fall into sin. The Sabbath expectations, the, the, the rest that we needed didn't become a realization until the curse fell on us. And now, as he calls his people together, he says and commands them to Sabbath. And the Israelites took it pretty seriously. 
I mean, they were serious about the Sabbath. They were so serious about the Sabbath that when they assembled the Talmud, now they, they, had, they had the five books of law, and then they had their extra book that they made up other laws to make sure that they didn't break any of these laws. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the, 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 uh, the Pentateuch or the five books of law were the swimming pool. And as long as you didn't get in the swimming pool, you didn't get in trouble. It's like when you're a kid and your parents tell you, don't get in the pool unless I'm out there watching you, you know. That was, the, that, was their, that was their law, you know, don't get wet. And the Talmud was like building a fence around the pool so that they never got close to it. So they made up all these man-made rules to keep them from breaking the real rule. But what they did in the Talmud was they decided, well, these are just as important as God's. And they began to hold to those over God's law. And so they established... It's a ton of Sabbath laws. In fact, there's 24 chapters in the Talmud of Sabbath laws explaining things you can and can't do on the Sabbath day. Here's some just for your, uh, just for your information and learning pleasure. Um, you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. That's what the Talmud said. That some would say that you couldn't travel more than 1,999 Steps. So you could take 1,999 steps by the law, by the Talmud, but if you took that 2,000 step, you'd broken the Sabbath. Could you imagine losing count? I mean, real, I, I, I think I was at like 1750 to start over. But you can't, because as soon as you take that 2,000 step, you're in sin. Now, you couldn't carry a burden that weighed more than a fig. Have you ever held a fig in your hand? If you threw an object in the air and you caught it with the other hand, it was sinful. But if you caught it in the same hand, it was okay. I don't know, I don't know where they even got that. I mean, how do you dream that up? That's all right. But if you start juggling, you're sinning. Here's another one. I like this. You can't spit in the dirt and rub it with your foot because it's too much like tilling the soil and preparing it for planting. You couldn't pick up your tunic and carry it into another room, but you could put it on, move into the other room, and take it off if you wanted to have it in there for some reason. But don't lose count of your steps because you might break the Sabbath. You couldn't light a fire. And cold water could be poured on warm water, but warm water couldn't be poured on cold water. Pretty logical, right? It goes on and on and on and on. And in fact, they became so creative in ways to work around their own laws, they would do things like tie a piece of string at the end of their an alley in front of their house or behind their house. They would tie a piece of string because as they tied that piece of string, it was as if they were saying, this is my property and my steps, the steps that I'm going to take today don't count until I cross that string. So they made up all these rules and then they made up all kinds of ways to get around the rules. They were serious about their Sabbath though. And here's the deal. Here's the problem with that is that the Sabbath 
in this. The, the Sabbath lost its intention. It lost its purpose because all of a sudden the Sabbath is no longer a day of rest or a reason to come together and celebrate, but the Sabbath, the Sabbath became a burden because you had to pay so much attention to all the things that you couldn't do. And it became so man-centered that they lost sight of what was behind the Sabbath. But in this passage, if we take it for what the Scripture says, in fact, you should know that in the Scripture, there's only just a few things that it says you can't do on the Sabbath. It says you can't work, and that's about as far as that definition goes. And it says you can't go out and gather manna and store up manna on the Sabbath. I don't think we have that problem because we're not going out to gather manna anymore. But here, in this passage, I think we can see, I think we can see what God intended for the Sabbath. In the Sabbath, we see a holy God establishing a holy people. I mean, imagine what it's like for a people who've come out of slavery. They were in slavery for 400 years. The Israelites lived under slavery in bondage to the Egyptians for 400 years. The people that God led out into the desert had never known anything but slavery. They were born in it. They didn't, they didn't grow up in a culture that had five-day work weeks and Saturdays and Sundays are expected to be off. They didn't grow up with a perspective that somebody owed them something. They were property. They were thought less of. They were lower in the whole caste system. They were at the bottom of the pile. And here God is telling them, you deserve to rest. You need to rest and he's, he's giving them this day and He's giving this, them this command that is in their best interest. And it's setting them apart from all other peoples. I don't think it's that the Israelites were the only ones that ever took a day off. In fact, I'd say that as long as the Israelites worked for the Egyptians, the Egyptians enjoyed all kinds of days off. Because they didn't have to do their own stuff. They got to enjoy it. Like, I mean, they were, they were kicking back and just loving life, watching the pyramids go up and claiming all the credit. You know, they were, they were sitting back and, and building their little kingdom and, 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 and thinking how powerful they were because they had someone else doing all the work. I'm sure that they enjoyed plenty of time off. I, I know that in the Roman culture, it was like a 10-day work week, and then you were, or a 9-day work week, and on the 10th day, you were supposed to get some rest. It's not, like that, it's not like the Israelites were the first people to ever have a day off. But here's what made it different. Their day off, their day of rest was not to be centered around them only. Certainly, they were to enjoy the rest. But underneath that rest, the foundation of that rest was that it was a Sabbath to the Lord. That's what it made it different. I mean, think about it. What, what do you look forward to the weekend for? I mean, why do, you, why do we get so excited about the weekend? I know when, when I was working at Worldwide, the reason I enjoyed or looked forward to the weekend was because I got to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, and I didn't have a boss coming down and changing my plans for me. And when he came down and asked me to work on a Saturday that's changing my plans and it messed with me. I'd get upset and I'd be bothered by it. Some of us have, have hobbies that we save to the weekend. Fishing, 
golf, uh, hunting, you you name it. Some some of us, I don't don't know if if you collect stamps on the weekend. You probably do that any time. I'm not trying to cut you out if you got that kind of hobby. It's just, I think you probably do that through the week. But, but some of us, we save that time for ourselves to enjoy because we're looking for some leisure. We're looking for some release. We're looking to satisfy something in ourselves. And the truth is, probably if we dig down underneath all the surface things we say that we do on the weekend, the motive behind it is probably some selfish perspective. I, I know there's probably some super spiritual holy people in here that, that really they look forward to the weekend only so they can come to church. And, and I'm, I'm loving you. I'm glad you're here. But the reality of us is that all of us are not that perfect. And we struggle against this. And the truth is, is that underneath the, our desire for a weekend, in many cases, most cases, is going to be a desire to serve ourselves. You see, God was establishing something different as He called His people Israel. He was establishing a holy people, a people that were distinct and set apart from the rest of the world, a people whose, whose rest and leisure was as much honor to God and worship to God as their days at work. It's a beautiful thing, really. And see, the idea behind this holiness, the idea of what holiness is, is to be distinct. We, we, we use holy, being holy, as it's synonymous with, with being pure and sinless. And that's okay, because to be distinct and set apart in this world, you need to strive to live a sinless life, because really everybody's sinning. I mean, if you want to be rebellious, if you want to be a rebel in this world, there's actually a song about this. You can listen to it. Lecrae, I would encourage you to look it up, listen to it, find it on iTunes, YouTube, whatever. Lecrae, Rebels, name of it. But if you want to be a rebel in this world, the reality is, is you've got to strive to live for the Lord. Because everybody's doing all the junk that sounds like fun. It's, it's not rebellious to sleep around before you're married. Because the reality is almost everybody's doing that. It's not rebellious to, for a guy to get on, on, on the internet and look at porn. Because the reality is the majority of guys are doing that. It's not rebellious to sleep in on Sunday morning because the majority of people are doing that. To be a rebel in this world is to be a holy person. So to think of holiness as synonymous with sinless impurity, that's okay. But the real root meaning and understanding of holiness is being set apart, being distinct. And I think it's beautiful in this passage because God is coming and He is establishing them as a holy people. They didn't wake up one day after they got out of Egypt and decide, we are going to set aside a day for you, God, so that we can be holy. No, it was all God. You see, that's the way holiness before God works. There's really only two ways to be holy. To be sinlessly perfect in all things. From the moment you... Well, probably from the moment of conception. Since we know that David said that I was conceived in sin, not that his parents were not married or being sinful, but that he, the moment of his conception, was a sinner. I don't think we have the power to do that. Or to be called holy by God. I'm either going to do it on my own or God's going to do it for me. And that's how we see God approaching the Israelites. You see Him doing this at every turn in their history. He comes to them and He says, You are holy. Not because of what you have done, but because of what I've called you 
what I've named you to be. See, God, in the Sabbath, He is establishing a holy people, a people that are set apart, that are distinct, that, that belong to Him. And I think in the Sabbath, we see God establishing a holy people, and I think we see God providing for His people. It goes against all of our senses. Every one of our senses is, it tells us if we want to make progress, if we want to see something happen, if we want to take care of, if we want, if we want results, we got to make it happen. In fact, there's a big saying, you know, if you want it done right, do it yourself. If it, you can't trust people to get things done, especially those of us that are control freaks, you know, we don't like to delegate. We don't like to give things away because we recognize that we're going to do it right and we, we think that everything we've got to do it. And I'm just, I, I know this because I'm a doer. I'm a doer before I'm anything else. And I, I, if, I hear, if I see a task, if I understand a task, I'm about getting it done. And there's probably, probably a lot of you in here like this. It's against all of, our, all of our senses to do this. But God is saying, in the Sabbath, you will see me provide for you. I mean, think of what it is to be a farmer who knows that the day he's gone away from his crops, something's going to happen. I better be there to take care of him. The bugs are going to take over. Well, what is it to be a businessman and to shut down for the weekend and, and realize that, man, if I could just take these phone calls, it's a few more dollars I could earn. Or just a person that's an employee that, that recognizes they have to pay the bills. They have to make ends meet. we got to work, right? God says, take a day and rest and you'll see me provide. You see, in, in the Sabbath, God is saying, I'm the one that makes that happen for you. Certainly you got to go out and work. Certainly you got to go and labor hard. That's part of the curse. I mean, it happened when, when he talked to Adam at the fall. He says, you are going to work the earth and by the sweat of your brow. It's going to, and it's, it's, it's going to bear fruit, but it's not just going to bear fruit. It's going to bear thorns and thistles and it's going to be tough and it's going to suck. And that's work in this fallen world. If we're going to make a way, we've got to go and we've got to work hard. But God says, it's not your hard work that brings the fruit. In fact, take a day off and rest and you'll see. He's the one that makes your ends meet. He's the one that, that brings things together. He's the one that bears the fruit. <laughs> you see, when we, we, we can accomplish so much more trusting in God than ever could, than we ever could, standing on our own. And you can go and you can work seven days a week all you want, God says. But the blessing is in the Sabbath. Because in the Sabbath, as you rest in me, you will see my provision. You see, he calls them to stop working. A people who have probably not had a day off their entire lives. Who thought that everything that was going to be done depended on them getting it done. And here they were hearing from God. Cease your work. In the Sabbath we see God bringing 
or providing for his people. And in the Sabbath, we see a holy God bringing joy to his people. I mean, hear the words again. Listen, listen to where it's placed in the Scripture. He says, in Leviticus, it says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord. This is a celebration, he says. And then immediately following this verse, he breaks out with the Sabbath. It's the first one he mentions. It's the first thing he says. Tell them about these celebrations. Tell them of these reasons to, be, to, to find joy and excitement in life. Something to look forward to. Something to satisfy. Something to bring contentment. This celebration, this feast is meant for our joy. God wants us to know His joy and and He's bringing joy to His people. So many people think of God's commands and they think of them as as a burden and as something to keep us from fun and something to to pull us away from, from things that we might enjoy in the world. But the reality is, is that God, as He dealt with these Israelites and as He gave them these laws, the Sabbath was never meant to be a burden. And by adding on to it and piling all of their junk on top of it, they ruined it. Because all of a sudden it became about what they could do rather than what God had provided them. And all of a sudden it became about their works rather than God's. But we're going to know our greatest joy when we recognize God's great provision when we see God's great work, when we recognize who God has called us, when we see our freedom, when we recognize that He looks at us despite our works, He looks at us and says, you are approved. You are accepted. You are my child. When He he says to us that you can be in my presence and I love you unconditionally, that's when we're going to sense His joy. That's when our hearts are going to fill and we're going to bubble over with the excitement and satisfaction that it is to know this God. You see, this Sabbath was given to bring His people joy. God longs for His people, not just to physically know His blessing, but to know it spiritually and mentally, every part of us, that we can know Him. That we can be in His presence and walk in relationship with Him. And today, we're not bound by the Sabbath law. Today, it's not like we have to stop working at 5 o'clock on Friday or else we're in sin. Today, it's not as if this law holds weight over us. But the principles are still there. The writer of Hebrews even tells us that there is still a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is still a Sabbath for us. But the Sabbath looks a little different because of the work of Christ. Listen to this. Colossians 2, 16-17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what Paul is saying is, Don't let anybody get on your back or cause you trouble because you're not observing the same holidays that they do. And he specifically calls out a Sabbath. He says, says, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. 
The Sabbath law that God gave the Israelites was a shadow of the things to come in Christ. The real deal, the real fulfillment of that, the experience, the the complete fulfillment, the complete uh, uh, consummation of that comes in Jesus Christ. He's the substance. He's what everything else was pointing to. So we can recognize in Christ, God has made us holy. The very same thing that God was doing in establishing the Sabbath and establishing these festivals, establishing a holy people, God has done in Jesus. You are holy because God has made you holy in Christ. It's no longer about your works or your life or your actions. It's about what Jesus has done. It's all Him. In Christ, we have been made holy. We we no longer have to observe the sacrifices or the rituals. We no no, no longer have the works to, to, to load onto ourselves to try and fulfill because we trust in His work. It's what He has done and His perfect life that He had lived. All tied up in His sacrificial death and the powerful resurrection that provides us great hope in Christ God has made us holy. In Christ, God has provided for us what we could never gain ourselves. For the Israelites, they're seeing God's provision in the physical, in in a physical way. They're seeing God provide because their work and the fruit of their work is not totally dependent upon them being out in the fields and out doing the work every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's dependent upon the fruit of God and the blessing of God on them. But in Christ, we've been provided something that we could never have gotten on our own. One of two ways. Be holy on your own. Good luck. Be holy in Christ. It is a gift from Him. A provision from God. He's given it to you. Not based on what you have done. And in Christ, we can know the fullness of joy. In Christ, we can know a joy that no one else in this world can know and experience. See, it's not bound necessarily to a day. It's bound to a man who was God in flesh. And the hope and the contentment and the satisfaction and the understanding that the all-powerful God who created the universe stepped into our existence we could know Him. In Christ, we can know the fullness of joy. Now, I don't think, as I've said, I've said it over and over, I don't think that we're bound to a day. I don't think we're bound to any specific day, but let me encourage you with this. Take a day and Sabbath to the Lord. Here again, in in the words of Leviticus, it says it's a holy convocation. What that means simply is it is a distinct and special gathering for worship. Convocation, if you translate it into the Greek, is ecclesia. And if you know anything about the Greek, ecclesia is the church. It should be no surprise that we're here gathered together as a holy convocation. 
Now, a lot of people struggle with the idea that we should do it on Saturday. Some people say we should do it on Sunday. I am of the mind that you could probably Sabbath any day you wanted to because our Sabbath rest is really in Christ. But I think it makes good sense together on the day that Jesus rose from the grave and provided our salvation. He put the nail in the coffin of death and he stuck it in the ground and he said, it is no more. It has no victory over you. Death has lost its sting. You are alive. What a great day to gather in a holy convocation to rest from our work, to rest from the, from, from, from the troubles of life and the burdens we carry, to come and gather together to sing praises. To hear the truth of God proclaimed and let it stir and let the Spirit rest in us and do a work in us that changes us. What a beautiful day. What a beautiful time together. You see, this isn't just about this moment, though. Christ is your Sabbath rest. Not bound to a calendar not bound to a set of traditions. Worship was never meant to be an event that was segregated or or set apart from the rest of life. Every moment of our life as believers in Jesus Christ is lived with this knowledge that we are at rest because we are no longer working for our holiness. We have received the provision of God and He wants us to enjoy it. Every day. From here until the day that the trumpet blows and our Christ, our Savior, returns. The song we sang at at the end, that that last verse is, is, no, my favorite hymn, I can't believe I'm messing it up. Somebody tell me that last song we sang. How great thou art, golly, trying to mix it all up in my head. How great thou art. You know, that that last verse of how great thou art, it speaks of the joy and when when Christ returns and when He comes back, what it's going to be to see Him and be in His presence. Then we'll know in a physical way all that our spirit tells us is true. Then we'll know that the consummation is real and the rest is complete. But know that you are not going to be any more saved that day than you are today. You can rest in Him from now on. His work, He said, it is finished. There's nothing else to be done. Rest in Him. Christ is your Sabbath. Rest. Rest. Lay your deadly doing down. Let's pray. Father God, You have made us holy. You have accepted us and loved us, provided for us, and given us reason to celebrate. May we recognize, God, that in the Sabbath... In, in the work you've done in providing us and calling us to this rest, God, that we would see you at work. And then we would recognize this as a foundation for all of our life, 
for all of our perspective as we move forward that we recognize your holiness and our holiness in connection with that. That we would recognize our who we are in light of what you have done and what you have called us and what you have said about us. God, would you please help us to trust in you. We love you and thank you. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.